This is the Pain Information Network. Q&A with Hanson. I have a few questions that uh, some folks have asked me to talk about, and I'm going to talk about them because they are timely and they're interesting. Now, the first question is asked of me, and I, I think it was a provider of pain care. They wanted to know a little bit more about urine testing, and they do urine testing occasionally. They usually send them to the hospital. They sometimes don't know what they're looking at when they get the results back, or if there was a chance of diversion, misuse, and abuse. And another problem is, what what are all these metabolites? Now, beyond the scope of this question is going to be a podcast I'm doing on adherence monitoring, which will go pretty deep into that stuff. They call it uh, on podcast deep diving. But whatever you want to call it, there's some principles that are important. And I think this individual wanted to know some of the basics. Well, first of all, when you get a urine test, you're doing it for a reason. First and foremost, it's not a, quote, screening test. We order tests based on need. We order them on clinical necessity. We don't screen. So if you have a reason to get a urine test, it's important to get it. What are some of those reasons? Well, you don't know where the pills are going. They're always short pills or on the pill count. It just doesn't make sense. There may be more. There may be none. Oh, my pills fell in the sink. Well, Why doesn't erythromycin fall in the sink? I mean, there's red flags. When you see the red flags, hear the red flags, act on it. If it quacks like a duck, walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So you make things that are obvious um, a possibility through a red flag, but we always try to give the patient the benefit of the doubt. In other words, this is not accusatory. This isn't a moral failing. What we're doing is we're trying to apply these principles of adherence monitoring or monitoring for use to the patient and the community's better health and safety. So we'll go pretty deep into urine testing, but let me let me scratch the surface. First of all, what are we testing and how long are we going to see the drug in the urine? So given there's hair testing, saliva testing, skin testing, uh, hair testing. I mean, there's lots of ways to do it. And it has varying degrees of detectability, accuracy, and convenience. We can even do blood testing, but that's pretty intrusive. I think that most common way to do things is urine. And there's the urine point of care cup. That's where the doctor, nurse, healthcare provider, whomever it might be, tech, uh, obtains a sample, and it's in a special cup that is read on the spot. It it can pick up the basics. It's not particularly uh, sensitive sometimes. It can be specific, particularly with cocaine and its metabolite benzalignine. If, If it's there, cocaine is there. But a lot of times we have to send the positives off to get a confirmation at a specialty lab that has a very sophisticated machine. So what are the detection times? Let me go through these real quickly. Hydrocodone, if we have a cutoff, say that the lower level, not the basement, but say the first floor of the house is somewhere around 300 um, and... 
we are looking just at that number, you usually see it in a day or two. Okay, we've got to send that off for confirmation. Hydrocodone and oxycodone, the synthetics are kind of nonspecific. We usually have to send them off from the point of care cup. I'd say that basically with all opioids or drugs of question. Again, the exception being cocaine. If it's positive cocaine, it's cocaine. Uh, and oxycodone, usually one to three days. Morphine, a little bit longer depending on the formulation. The short-acting, maybe one to two days, long-acting, three to four days or maybe longer. Now, methadone, this is the kicker. This is why 3% of methadone prescriptions turn into over 30% of opioid-related deaths. Methadone does not have a sense of humor that we are aware of. It does uh, just stick around. And if you're taking other drugs, if you're taking drugs even like ranitidine or Zantac over the counter, it interferes with the ability to get rid of this drug through the liver and its associated enzymes. So what you're going to do, you're going to look at methadone as the different bird. It's uh, going to be detectable sometimes up to 150 hours. And that just depends on a number of circumstances, comorbid disease, drugs that are taken, and the like. But think about that. This drug can accumulate. So if you're using methadone or you prescribe methadone, do so with a high level of care, understanding this drug sticks around, therefore it's in the urine a while. I would say most commonly about 5 to 10 days. Uh, Codeine, just simple codeine, 1 to 3 days. Now, benzodiazepines, depending on the formulation, they can stick around for up to 30 days. You can pick them up for up to 30 days. If you obtain steady state, that's five half-lives of Valium, sometimes in the elderly it's clearly going to be there with its metabolite for a week. So say you're getting Tamazepam or one of the other PAMs, Uh, for sleep and you're taking Valium or Clonopin during the day and over a while you're just kind of not thinking as clear as you wanted to or you're not sleeping as well as you wanted to. Now wait a minute, these drugs are for sleep, right? Yeah, they interfere with sleep. Um, And you don't have any get up and go, that all got up and went. Well, it's because these drugs are accumulating as well and they cause these side effects. These drugs interact with other central nervous system depressants, and they can do so in a deadly way. I can tell you in the reports you look at from the coroner's office, when there's a drug overdose, it's always suspected to be opioid, but a lot of the times, and I mean a lot of the times, there's a benzodiazepine in there. That's why the CDC guidelines, number 11, recommends caution. I completely agree. I I don't even know a reason why these drugs are around anymore. I suppose for seizures and things like that yeah they can be helpful in an acute care setting uh, administered by somebody that really knows how to use them and for um, a short period of time they can be used for certain situations but for long-term maintenance therapy of quote anxiety unquote no bad drugs really bad drugs all right cocaine it really depends on the individual but it's around one to three days amphetamines a little longer two to four methamphetamine same two to four but there's two types of methamphetamine and usually have to send it off to get the uh exact uh nature of the drug is this the bad drug or the good drug 
dextrorotatory or levorotatory. L is legal, D is drug. So D is the bad one. Heroin can be quite a while, one to three days, but the metabolite 6-MAM is really short. You can only pick it up for about six hours. Um, PCP can be quite long, up to eight days. Now, the thing about bent barbiturates is it depends on which one it is. And remember, this drug can be nasty too. Benzodiazepines replaced barbiturates because barbiturates were recognized as uh, Mr. Nasty uh, a long time ago, and they hung around a long time. They can hang around for 10 days, but that's the drug that killed Marilyn Monroe, probably. And you mix that thing with alcohol, you got yourself a real item of risk. What about Mr. Marijuana? Well, it's one to three days for casual use. I think it's a little longer. But it can be, one uh, toxicology textbook says 77 days for chronic use, 11 weeks in uh, a recent uh, substance abuse textbook that uh, was uh, edited by Alan Kay. And it's it's just depending on how much you use this uh, drug. And it is not a casual drug. It hangs around. It's like tar. It, it just sludges and I think that uh, that's one of those things I always got to kind of ask myself why would you want to use a drug that is unmetered is unpredictable can accumulate in that sort of sense and let's just face it these people aren't highly motivated when they're using these drugs (laughs) okay well we'll get more into this So there's blood, urine, hair, saliva, and a sweat patch as possible uh, detection devices. It depends on where you send it. Um, There's a a different uh, way that uh, you can beat these drugs. Uh, So in blood, you, you almost can't beat it. It's really hard to cheat. In urine, yeah, you can. In hair, not really. Same with saliva and the sweat patch. It's really hard to beat those. The cost of urine can be cheap, anywhere from 15 to $30, but if you send it off for confirmation, it can be very expensive. There's a whole urine testing industry, and they're, they're pretty aggressive in their, their marketing and their desire to have uh, physicians use their labs. Topic for another day. All right, so that br- briefly scratches the surface. What do you do? when you have a urine positive. Well, the next thing you do, you get the test result back from the confirmation lab and you look at the metabolites. Well, I have hydrocodone. Well, there it is. Okay, it's, it's, they must be using their drug. Where's the metabolite? What is a metabolite? Well, hydrocodone is broken down to hydromorphone in most of us, except Northern European descendants, like two to 5% don't have the proper enzyme to do it, but that being aside, there's no metabolite. Hydromorphone isn't there. Hydromorphone uh, is uh, the base drug in Dilaudid, basically. It's an, it's an active and potent opioid. That's one of the ways hydrocodone works. Well, okay, there's hydrocodone, no metabolite. How about oxycodone? There's no oxymorphone. Where is that? Well, sometimes to beat a drug test, folks will hang on to a pill. They'll then take the urine cup and open it up and scrape a little of the drug in there so 
They think they got us. They don't got us. We have to understand our metabolites. And well beyond the scope of what I'm talking about right now is understanding the metabolites of benzodiazepines. It's all over the place. You do need to know or be able to reference what the metabolites are with these drug tests. Um, that's, that's a responsibility of anybody ordering these tests, what's there and what's not there. That's so important so that you don't falsely accuse. Now, the other thing is you want to know what cross-reacts. So, you know, well, what do you mean cross-react? Sometimes you can get a false positive. Well, you can, and that's why we get our urine confirmation from the uh, gas chromatography, or LCMS is what it's called, and it it, it is not going to get beaten there. Um, once you have your LCMS result come back, you got your right answer. You got your straight answer uh, in an overwhelmingly uh, positive number of ways. So you're not going to confront people if you have an abnormal urine test. You're going to look at it as an opportunity to help them if they think they have a problem, refer out if they admit to having a problem, want to go that way, and to readjust your therapeutic profile based on the risk-reward benefit. So that's what urine drug testing is all about. It's to help the patient and the community. It is not punitive. We are not police officers. We are there to enhance the patient-physician relationship or patient-provider relationship built on trust. All right, the next question was about ketamine. This individual wanted to know about this drug they hear uh, that treats uh, this process called CRPS or chronic regional pain syndrome, and they wanted to know a little bit more about it. Well, to hear more about ketamine, it will be an upcoming episode, but I'll I'll tell you my experience with it is pretty robust. I'm an anesthesiologist, it's my heritage, and I used a lot of ketamine in the operating room, in the emergency room, and just in my overall clinical profile. It's a drug that fell out of favor because of some side effects it has, um, some terrors, and people get very anxious on it, and some kind of ugly side effects. But if it's used correctly, it's a fantastic drug. It can pretty much uh, turn a completely opioid-resistant problem, say in the burn unit, around, and you can reduce the risk of high-dose opioids uh, and add a little ketamine, and it's very synergistic, and it can really, really help. It helps with nerve-type pain, but let me tell you what it really helps. It helps addiction. It probably helps depression the most, and it does help pain. So I call it PAD, or pain, addiction, and depression. I'll talk about it more, but in the primitive part of the brain, this process uh, called synaptogenesis occurs where you create um, the, um, the process that moves forward with the way the neurons talk to each other through the dendritic formation or the spines of the neurons. And you can take these sick neurons or these uh, unhealthy neurons from chronic disease states like diabetes, Alzheimer's, um, addiction, I mean, a number of things, uh, just common disease states. And you can create more interrelationship between the neurons, and it kind of wakes them up. That's probably what ketamine does best. It doesn't necessarily treat chronic 
uh, disease states, and it's my personal belief that CRPS uh, is miscategorized many times uh, when, in fact, it is a manifestation of a depressive disorder, uh, or at least in part. And the ketamine goes in there and rapidly increases the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, uh, which also supports brain health. That rapid increase in BDNF um, really supports mood. It really helps. That's a healthy brain that high, has high levels of BDNF. Interestingly, that's what goes up when people were getting these electroconvulsive therapy treatments. Severe depression, we used to and still do in some cases, uh, take folks to the recovery room, give them a strong muscle relaxant, and perform electroconvulsive therapy. And that rapidly raises BDNF. Well, ketamine does too. So we have seen, and I have seen personally, uh, rapid increases in mood. And we know that pain, addiction, and depression share the common mechanisms in that primitive part of the brain, neurobiology of pain. So doesn't it make sense if your depression and anxiety gets a lot better? Your pain gets a lot better. That's what I'm thinking. So I've done probably 200-plus of these ketamine infusions, and I use them for chronic disease states, traumatic brain injury, um, and uh, CRPS, and common daily headaches, and uh, resistant pain. And there are some folks that have done studies with fibromyalgia, and I've seen it, that the pain of fibromyalgia just plummets people feel better. They get up and get moving. Now, interestingly, and this is the deal, BDNF rapidly increases with exercise. And you heard it here first. I don't think that these endogenous opioids, and you probably heard me say this, are what you would call runner's high or the exercise high you get. Uh, these enkephalins, dynorphins, and like. Because we can reverse those with Narcan. You heard about that in a another podcast, and it really doesn't change much. I think it's from a rapid rise in BDNF, and that's your runner's high. So you heard it here first, uh, the world according to me, right? Some of the science might support that too. So um, when we're looking at improving uh, pain, addiction, and depression, we want to support brain health and brain activity. And that's what ketamine's all about. It should be given in low dose. If you don't get a response in low dose, these high dose protocols, they're, they're heavily intrusive, wildly expensive, and they have significant risk. So talk it over with your care provider. Um, I'm not going to give anybody advice on this. This is something that needs to be looked into on an individual basis with an individual practitioner that has a lot of experience with ketamine. I don't think ketamine should be administered by anybody but an anesthesiologist. That's my opinion, but I think it's supported uh, in the community as well. All right, well, that's a little bit of that. So ketamine, in conclusion, works beautifully with depression. Uh, The pain tends to get better. Uh, Mood gets better. Activity gets better. And so we're saying the right thing when we tell people, stay active, go out, get exercise and the like. We're elevating BDNF, we're getting somewhere. If you actually looked at the functional magnetic resonance imaging of the brain, uh, you can actually see that brain mass can actually uh, improve as well. All right, a little bit uh, of a complicated discussion there, but we're going to smooth that road over in future podcasts. 
Okay, next question. My doctor has been treating me for failed back uh, surgery syndrome, FBSS, or failed back syndrome. Because I had back surgery and I had uh, bolts and other things put in my spine, uh, this person tells me more about their individual circumstance and very difficult situation. Doesn't like narcotics, doesn't like opioids, can't take opioids, doesn't do well with most medications that we call adjuncts, like the gabapentinoids and the like, uh, is kind of miserable. Their function is going down, down, down. And spinal cord stimulation is probably not an option because of the sensitivity to the metals and the like and uh, does not want a foreign body. Well, there's metal in you already. So we have to take that into account. Number two, it's very, very rare to have a problem with a uh, spinal cord stimulator. These are really fantastic devices. They do a fantastic job with this difficult problem. In fact, there might not be a lot left outside of a pump uh, when you have something called arachnoiditis or if you do have a significant failed back surgery syndrome. There are some other things that we could try, but if you just don't do well with medications, this is an incredibly good option, one that you should at least entertain. And number three, you know, you can test it uh, before you buy it. You know, you can take a test drive. We do the trial for a number of days before we actually do the implantation. And you can actually probably get tested for your sensitivity to metals and see if that would really be a problem. It's a personal decision. I completely get that. But don't rule out spinal cord stimulation. We'll continue to talk about spinal cord stimulation. Also, there are newer pain medicines. Some of these newer pain medicines aren't pure mu opioid agonists. They don't uh, have a lot of the same side effects as the pure mu opioid agonists like the morphines, the hydrocodones, oxymorphones, oxycodones, etc. You might want to entertain those. And if you can't take gabapentinoids and all, you know, there's some of these other drugs like topiramate or topamax are nice. And if you have a little bit of a weight problem, it could actually help you lose a little bit of weight. And we also use another drug called uh, Keppra and some other drugs that can be tried. Something to think about. Talk it over with your practitioner and uh, see see if it's that's, if that's a route you want to go. This is where a pain management specialist can shine, particularly one that understands pharmacology. You know, we're clinical pharmacologists. I think most pain practitioners want to use the safest profile of medic- medication that you, you can do and get the same kind of desired relief that you would expect. It's not going to be 100%. I think that's unrealistic. You know, we can't control diabetes to 100%, hypertension to 100%. You know, so many disease states, we have to manage it. And if you have to be on these meds long term, so what? Uh, you know, we treat hypertension and diabetes forever. <laughs> and it's, it's the way to do things um, to keep your function and quality of life in check. And that's what we need to do when we're uh, practicing pain medicine is always look at those indices. From a compassion standpoint, I want to get rid of all your pain. But from a realistic standpoint, I want to emphasize function. Rule five. Okay, I think, I think I've pretty much rambled on for today and I'm going to um, answer some more of these questions uh, in upcoming episodes. I, 
I have a couple of really interesting questions ahead, like <laughs> what do you do if you uh, suspect that um, adolescents are getting into medications and this is a young brain and we want to save that person? When they start using pills early, it's a problem. So that's that's a very interesting question, and it is very contemporary. It happens a lot. It happens a lot more than people think. Lock your medicines up. So we will talk to you soon, and um, please go uh, subscribe to us, and you go to iTunes to do that and leave us a review, paininformation.com if you want to leave a comment or two, or send me a question if you want to send me a question. I'm going to do some more on opioids. That's that's the popular thing this summer, and uh, we'll get back to interventional techniques as well. So have a great summer, and get out and get active.